Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Before we get into my interview with Mark Eisenberg, who I'm really, really excited to talk to, wanted to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Great Point Podcast. That way, as soon as episodes are done, you can listen to them because they'll pop up right away. Now, Mark Eisenberg is starting a new podcast. He is the host of the 40-Year Coach I'm really pumped about this podcast because he's going to be talking to coaches. He's going to be talking about his stance on the NCAA. And I know what you're thinking right now. Um, Who's Mark Eisenberg? Well, he is one of the smartest, savviest, most thought-provoking people, both on the internet. He writes for Basketball Times. He wrote multiple books, Money Players, Student Athlete, Survival Guide, represented multiple college coaches testified in some high-profile cases against the NCAA. He writes a monthly column in Basketball Times called Money Players. And he's a business advisor to athletes and their families. I have referred to him as an NCAA watchdog, and he has been used in that capacity as an analyst on such shows as ESPN's Outside the Lines. So I am thrilled to have Mark Eisenberg on the Great Point Podcast. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Adam. With an introduction like that, um, as long as there's not another Mark Eisenberg that uh, I'm being confused with, my mom will be thrilled to listen. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it, uh, Mark. I, I want to ask you about your new podcast. I have a bunch of questions about the NCAA and uh, some different takes that you have. But of course, as with all guests, I need to start out by asking, "What's your earliest basketball memory?" Uh, I was ready for this. That's listening to all your podcasts. And I had to go back. Uh, My first basketball memory that really stands out. uh, I'm from Chicago from age six years old to probably nine. My sport was hockey. I go to a sleepaway camp. I think I was like nine years old and they had tryouts for the basketball league. And I just, I was so pumped to play. And, you know, I, I mean, I was athletic. I was fast. I impressed them. And then the season started and we went through the entire season. At the end, they had, they, they printed out the statistics and it was, you know, one of those moments that, you know, could have changed on me. But I just remember seeing next to Mark Eisenberg points per game, 0.0. I did not score the entire year, but I love the game. I, I, well, I know you still love it. That That is for sure. And you've certainly been passionate through the years about about student athletes, as they're referred to by by the NCAA. So I guess I want to start with an, an overarching question. And people that have read your stuff uh, or have seen you on TV, I guess the, the first question to ask is, what is your problem with the NCAA? My problem? I, you know, first, the, the way I always, you know, would respond to that is I love college athletics. I even, and this might surprise some people, I believe in amateurism. 
I played it. It's called Division Three. What is taking place at the highest level with all the money that has come into the games, not millions, but billions, coaches that are making uh, five millions. Now we're getting close to the $10 million per year. There's nothing wrong with the free market system uh, you know, coming into college athletics as long as everybody can access it. And, you know, that's really, you know, been my frustration is that we, we continue to sing the tune of how virtuous amateurism is. We talk about the experience, the value they're getting with an education, all the PSAs that the NCA runs during, uh, you know, March Madness. And if you're if you if you're not necessarily in the trenches, you don't understand that it's a different game, literally and figuratively, being played at the upper echelons of college athletics. How so? How so? Well, let's you know start out with the <laughs> relationship that uh, first is uh, recognized between athlete and institution, uh, which is through the National Letter of Intent, which. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I was reading the clauses to uh, my wife who, uh, I mean, full disclosure, we should let everybody know that we are very good friends. And this is almost like uh, all the other conversations that we had. The only difference is I think you pressed uh, record and we get to do it for other people. <laughs> That's so, true. That's right. true. Uh, but my, my wife is a sports and entertainment attorney. And I was reading her the clauses of the National Letter of Intent, just getting fired up saying, uh, then this, you know, that you sign with this school, not uh, the, you know, the uh, coach. If the coach leaves, you're still bound to attend. If you don't uh, honor the national letter of intent for one year, you get docked one year of eligibility and you can't play for one year. The provisions are draconian. I'm not even, it's it's like the old Ron Popeil um, infomercials, but wait, there's more. It's all still subject to an athlete being admitted in, into the institution. So you sign the National Letter of, of Intent, say, in November, and you shut off the recruitment for, every, you know, for all the other schools that might have been interested in you. And for whatever reason, you're not admitted into the school, then I don't want to use profanity on this podcast, but you're, you know, SOL. And, and, and again, you know, from, you know, from my perspective, that's the beginning of, you know, a slow path to uh, athletes not really having a legitimate voice. Uh, when you wonder why the rules are what they are, every other constituency in college athletics, the college presidents, the athletic directors, even the coaches, um, you know, have, an organization that furthers and advocates for their interests. Uh, we can get into the you know, what, what, the, what the NCA terms the Student Athlete Advisory Committee um, and, and the issues that I have with them, um, and we could probably fill up the entire podcast on that. <laughs> well, you talked about you know how there are advocates for the organization and for coaches, uh, but as far as the advocates for the athletes themselves. You know, the, the strongest voice that, that people hear, the loudest voice or maybe, you know, the most projected voice is Jay Billis's. But you're right there alongside Jay and, and, and your arguments oftentimes, you know, are in unison. There are counter arguments that I hear all the time. And usually what happens is someone makes a complaint about, oh, how can these students complain when I was in school? You know, the get off my yard stuff, which we'll get into the, the specific arguments. But what's interesting is I always end up referring those arguments back to things that you've told me 
And, and that's how I typically counter them. But I think we need to start with where the money is. The NCAA basketball tournament is a billion dollar business. Uh, the new deal that was was recently signed was $8.8 billion. College football playoff, $7.3 billion for the rights to that. So out of those organizations uh, alone, and we're talking right now high major basketball and and football at the college level, um, the athletes, though, are making none of that. So how much of what you believe in is that the athletes should be compensated in some way for participating in those events alone? Yeah, I've been asked that question, and a lot of people just automatically assume that I'm a pay-for-play guy. And you know what I actually you know, counter with is like I, I recognize that college athletes are never going to get paid. Uh, they're, they're never going to be 1099. Uh, you know, by the schools are never going to be employees uh, because, you know, for, uh, you know, another group of reasons that, that we can get into to detail workman's comp, uh, the entire, you know, nonprofit status. So I always say, like, I'll concede, fine, co- don't pay college athletes, but don't also deny them the right to capitalize off their name, image, and likeness. And that goes into the O'Bannon case and, uh, you know, and how that affects you know, current athletes. So ultimately, it's a question for you about how these athletes are treated, not necessarily that they're not getting paid. So what people counter with all the time that the the argument always comes back to, well, these athletes are on athletic scholarships. The the cost of tuition is rising every year. I mean, sometimes we're talking about scholarships that are quote unquote worth fifty or sixty thousand dollars per year. So the question then becomes, why isn't that enough? Okay, so that's always a good conversation. And you know, I would I would say that if a athlete comes into that institution with the mindset that he's going to be a true student athlete and he's going to take advantage of the opportunities both on and off the court, if they're a basketball player, football player, whatever they are, um, and they leave the institution with a meaningful degree that will carry them after their playing career ends and they parlay that into uh, some economic value, absolutely. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the deal is squared just because the the value of a college scholarship can be fairly significant, especially to those who you know sit behind their computer screens on Twitter and say, "Look, I'm sitting with a hundred thousand dollars in student loans. I've got to pay them back. I don't want to care about hear, hear about student athletes' rights and people bitching about." Uh, athlete compensation. I understand you know what what they're saying, but it doesn't make it right for all the reasons that we've talked about. It's now a you know a multi-billion dollar industry. It's the greatest game going. The the ratings have been off the chart just in the first couple of weeks of co- the first week of college football. Uh, so you know again and then and then that's only for you know the 50% of the uh you know the athletes in those sports that graduate? What about those that go to school and don't graduate? Or what about, and one of my favorite lines, Eldon Campbell, who had gone to Clemson and then had a long MBA career. And they had asked uh, Eldon, 
did you earn your degree from Clemson? And I love his response. He was paying uh, attention to how the question was parsed. And he said, no, uh, I didn't earn my degree from Clemson, but they gave me one anyway. So we have to look at just the whole concept of what type of degree are they getting? Uh, Because the amount of hours required to be an elite athlete um, and all the things that the NCAA imposes on uh, athletes to maintain that they're legitimate student athletes, that they're taking 12 hours per quarter or semester and doesn't recognize that uh, some of them are behind academically. So, you know, we feed them with all kinds of academic support. You hope that it's legitimate and it doesn't cross the line into uh, doing the work for them and, uh, you know, just, you know, I mean, uh, outright cheating. But again, if if you read the headlines, if you read the court cases, if you follow what's going on, uh, you know, there there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot out there that suggests that if you are not yourself academically motivated, that you're, that the value of your degree is not going to be what it should be. There are people out there that say when a kid goes to Michigan or he goes to Louisville, fans care about the the jersey. They care about the the maize and blue. They they care about Louisville's colors. They don't necessarily care about who the kid is. I mean, if he's a 10th man, you know, who's barely getting any playing time, why does this kid need to be treated differently than, you know, the other kids in my you know, biology 101 class. And the idea of value, I know, is something you talk about a lot. So could you explain where you find the value in the actual athletes themselves and what, I guess, they're ultimately worth? So if you follow the NCAA PSAs that they run incessantly, there's what the, the tagline, I don't know if they still use it, but there's 500,000 student athletes in um, almost all of us will go pro in something other than their sport. Yes. Uh, and, and the whole premise behind the NCA rules is to create a level playing field. So an athlete is an athlete, whether you're participating in a revenue producing sport like basketball or football, or you're, uh, you know, a baseball player, soccer player, whatever sport is that is sponsored by an NCA institution. Uh, but the reality then, when you go from the NCA rulebook and the core principles that they espouse and everything that they do to how college athletics plays out in reality, it's completely different. So if you want to say that athletes shouldn't be given special treatment or given things above that of the general student population, to use the parlance of the NCAA, uh, because that was that is what the NCAA constitutes as an extra benefit – um, if you go down that road of bringing in uh, you know, private chefs, barber shops, chartered uh, you know, uh, flights, staying at five-star hotels, we've already decided that we're going to treat these athletes better. But if it's done under the uh, sponsorship of the NCA or one of their institutions, then it's okay. But everybody else, then it's somehow sinister. We're already treating them uh, different, better. It's just a matter of the NCA and their members wanting to exercise the highest level of control over athletes so that they um, don't have what they term outside influences 
um, entering the game and all that they that may bring, both good and bad, just depending on your perspective. All right, you talk about the outside influences. What we always hear as a bad thing, you know, it, it seems like when it comes to the NCAA, the NCAA is good, and yet Who said the that? other outside. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm saying this is the general perception and the way that it's it's uh, presented is that the NCAA is good. I'm not saying it's your argument, but these other outside influences, AAU, um, professional agents, uh, the professional sports leagues, um, boosters, these are all the, the bad. That's the, the scum. Those are the worst of the worst. Why is it that it's presented that way? And I guess ultimately, what differentiates what the NCA is doing and what these other organizations are doing? That's a loaded question, Adam. Uh, okay, let me start. Well, that's with, why I asked it. That's why yeah. Asked. Okay. So first of all, uh, you know, I mean, there's certain elements of the NCA and college athletics that are incredibly good. I know a lot of people that work at the NCA. Most of them are under 35, 40, you know, our age. Uh, but at the upper echelons of college athletics, there are these true believers. And what happens is, you know, if you, uh, you know, stray outside of their view of amateur sports, everything will come crumbling down. So for example, when we were talking about the O'Bannon case, when we were talking about uh, what implications all these uh, student athletes' rights in the Northwestern fight to unionize college athletes. The most illogical conclusion, it's like if A, then B, and then logically flowing from B, you know, the people who uh, you know, work in college athletics jump right to Z. Well, if, if college athletes are allowed to unionize uh, through the National Labor Relations Board, then I see big-time college athletics ceasing to exist and dropping down to the D Division three model. Okay, so uh, you either agree with that or uh, disagree, but there was never any rigor when it came to, is that really going to happen? Are we really going to turn our back on the NCA contracts with CBS and ESPN? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm off, oftentimes I go back to um, and I was too young. It was like in the early 70s when Marvin Miller and Kurt Flood were uh, fighting for free agency and really the end of the reserve clause. And you know, Bowie Kuhn, who was the commissioner at the time of Major League Baseball, said this will kill the goose that laid the golden egg. And you had a lot of players at that time. Uh, you know, saying, yeah, we don't want free agency because if you have the ability to uh, jump teams and, uh, you know, get what you might be worth on an open market, which is what free agency is, that's the end of this great enterprise. And we've got to be careful because if we get this, then, you know, the, the entire enterprise might implode. So what have we learned in the 30, 40 years since the advent of free agency? Sure, uh, the athletes who play baseball, basketball, football, who can access free agency, they've seen their salaries skyrocket. But so has, uh, you know, the the value of these franchises. It's you know, so so the bottom line is we don't know if we started providing means by which athletes can access their value while they're in school. 
if that would in any way turn off the average paying customer of college athletics and how that would change the landscape. I don't think it will. The NCAA and their members, understandably, will take this to the nth degree, will fight it to the, all the way to the Supreme Court because they know that they've got uh, you know, a great system in place if you sort of hide behind the idea that a student athlete is a student athlete, they're students, not employees, on and on with all these arguments. But, you know, then if you sort of have this thing in your head that's somewhere close to common sense, it's just not true. Did people, and, and again, just to continue on. So now the NCA for decades fought full cost of attendance because that was uh, you know, a form of compensation. And and, and by the way, um, athletic scholarships is a quid pro quo form of compensation. It's just a matter of the cutoff point that the NCA says we can tolerate as a membership organization. And this is what we're going to agree to. All right. I really am interested in the idea of unionization here. So Shane Battier, Mark Madsen, years ago, started discussing the idea of almost forming uh, a union with with college athletes leading the charge. We obviously saw Northwestern football players attempt to, to do so. So first, why don't you tell people about how you were involved when this whole Battier-Madsen thing um, came to the forefront at, at the Final Four in Indianapolis years ago? Right. So this is around 2000, 2001. And, for, and, and let me just you know, start at the very beginning. It was not an attempt in any way to unionize. It, the, okay. the whole premise uh, that was put forward by uh, Shane Battier and Mark Madsen and a few other college basketball players was that student athletes and their voice were being drowned out by the Student Athlete Advisory Committee and that they weren't representing their interests, which could be different. Uh, and I and and I remember Shane at the uh, press conference talking about the lack of due process, the lack of uh, you know the NCA viewing college basketball players as um, a legitimate voice and wanting to be heard about issues that impact their lives, and you know that was you know why they came together, and, and in fact it was sponsored by the NABC, the National Association of Basketball Coaches. They funded it. And uh, what was amazing was I was in the room. My involvement was I had a mutual friend with Shane Battier, uh, actually Chip England, who's a, a longtime shooting coach in the NBA, said, you know, you ought to talk to, to Mark. He's you know very passionate about these issues. And so I got invited to the meeting and I was just amazed, you know, and I, I wouldn't say amazed, but I was just, I love the energy in that room. I loved how savvy and knowledgeable these athletes are about issues that impact their lives. And I said to myself, wow, if we could ever channel this in a, in a productive way to speak um, on the issues that impact their lives and what could be done differently because their perspective has really never been legitimately heard. And, you know, that's what I thought was you know um, amazing and had the potential to be trans uh, transformational. 
Okay, so they get together. Uh, you know, there there was some amazing articles that were written about it, and you know, my my concern was that that was Shane Battier and Mark Madsen had just finished their junior years. They were going into their senior year. And what was going to happen when they graduated? Were they going to be able to uh, pass the mantle on to um, other students, student athletes that could, uh, you know, talk about these issues? And it was almost like this perfect storm because of who they were, four-year players that were, you know, all Americans, got it done on and off the court, amazing students. Um, we never got to that question um, and how we were going to answer it. Why? Because the NCA came back instead of saying, hey, we want to deal with them. We want to hear what they have to say. They said that the fact that the NABC sponsored this organization and flew, if it was 20 college basketball players to Indianapolis to get together and you know put them up in a hotel and gave them meals, that that constituted what? An extra benefit. So, I mean, it was almost comical, but it's kind of sad because, you know, in 2000, we didn't have the internet. We weren't able to get the word out. It was what it was. And, you know, there was nobody that was going to, you know, take it beyond that. But I, I, again, they weren't a union. They were trying to get together and share their experiences, be a strong group to advocate for their own. There was nothing sinister about it, and yet I think the NCA sort of, um, you know, came up with the most draconian response to it, which is, you know, how can we keep them um, away from meeting in one place at one time? And keep in mind, Adam, this was, you know, obviously before high-speed internet and, uh, you know, social media. So that, you know, died a quick death. Um, and, and then in about 2000, 2011, I started reengaging with the next generation of, of players. And we, uh, you know, started and, you know, had some successes and, and created something that was, you know, very much in the mold of the student basketball committee called Hoops Family. And the idea was that, you know, we've got to support our own. When something happens, there's a few of us that get on Twitter and we talk about how unfair something is, or we stand up for a particular player. And, um, you know, I, I, Mark, I appreciate you. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me ask you this part, just to, to cut you off on, on that point. What is it ultimately, you, you bring up these in general, but what is it specifically that basketball players aren't getting? Okay, so we start with the NCAA uh, enforcement and how they, uh, you know, I mean, something gets, uh, turned over information about alleged cheating and, you know, these are heady times so that they are put in a position where they are investigated and there might, they might not be given a fair shot because so oftentimes the interest of the institution and the player might be misaligned. The goal of an institution very well could be, how do we get the NCA off our back? So do we give up a player, admit to you know some level of wrongdoing? Oftentimes, and I've had this conversation because the coaches want to advocate for their players. They don't uh, want to see a player railroaded over some silly NCA rule, whether it's you know, a $100 extra benefit or whether it's a father uh, you know, who maybe had taken some money without the knowledge of the player. Um, again, just having rules in place that are fair-minded, that give athletes a chance to, um, you know, get a fair trial. 
Um, so then, you know, going back to the national letter of intent, the transfer rules, the um, the, the the rules that govern underclassmen uh, declaring for the MBA draft. Now they've they've gotten better, then they've gotten worse, then we went back to the rules, the no agent rule, the no agent rule that allows that that says that athletes can't access people who are knowledgeable experts in. Um, you know, the, the world of helping athletes make the transition from college to professional sports, uh, because bad things happen when athletes and agents convene. And so what ends up happening is they have all kinds of prohibitions. Um, and if anything, it just drives that marketplace underground and worse things happen. So as far as this is concerned, Hoops family, what were you guys doing about it? I mean, really, the the, the idea was knowledge is power. The more information that athletes have, not just about NCAA rules, but the people who inhabit their world. I wrote a book on the business of being a pro athlete. I help athletes make the transition from uh, high school to college and college to pros. The uh, the ones who are most susceptible to being taken advantage of by a shady you know, recruiter or a shady agent are those that trust others without having any kind of independent knowledge base. And so our view was there's strength in numbers. The more educated athletes and their families are about these issues, the more likely they are to uh, make better decisions, to do the due diligence, and, you know, ultimately end up with, you know, better results. And I mean, it's almost like whatever the figures are for athletes who go on to play professional sports, who end up having financial problems. If you reverse engineer it and you sort of go back to the very beginning of the coddling and the special treatment, uh, you know, it has its roots in, in all the stuff that we're talking about. So, you know, to me, as much as I'm an advocate for athletes, um, you know, I'm not turning a blind eye to the world that they inhabit and wanting them to be more educated about every aspect of the business of being a high profile college athlete with dreams of going on to a professional career. All right. And so in order to do that, it would be best, as you're talking about, for there to be some type of structure, some type of representation, union or otherwise. And what's odd is now you're seeing the one and dones, uh, which people point to, hey, the highest profile players, the highest profile athletes, they're not in school for very long anyway. So what will they care? And they're the ones people say they're the ones that need to to lead the charge. But we obviously saw Northwestern's, you know, uh, football players, that group was trying to organize and eventually that didn't come to pass. So why is it that there has been such a struggle for student athletes at the college level to come together for a common cause? Okay, so you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said that the most high profile college basketball players are only there uh, for one, maybe two years, and then they're off to their MBA career. The NCAA and their members have this built-in advantage because they're not going anywhere. They have unlimited resources. I think they're, uh, they have a war chest to f- you know, fight any kind of what they would call resistance. Uh, the, you know, so, so they really know how to, um, you know, fight any kind of effort to, uh, or when athletes come together to, um, you know, try to create their own advocacy group. 
On the other side, the athletes are evergreen. They come and go. And it's very difficult to, you know, really get the almost, you know, what we talked about before with Shane and Mark Madsen. And there's been plenty of others and, you know, somebody who I consider, you know, family, Nolan Smith, that are really savvy and educated, number one. I think they're all that way. The next question is, are they willing to come forward with their gripes? Are they willing to share um you know, their experience for the benefit of others. There's, um, you know, a mechanism in place that suggests that they stay quiet, that they don't rock the boat, that they don't want to do anything to jeopardize their, uh, you know, future possibilities, whether it's, you know, and, you know, in the NBA or whatever sport that they play. So again, I mean, it's, it's hard to make them, uh, you know, care enough that they're going to speak out against the injustices. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's very topical, Adam, to what we're, you know, what's going on with the national anthem and Colin Kaepernick. Uh, you know, are there consequences? Are there reprisals if you, you know, are willing to stand up for issues that you believe in? And, you know, what's, you know, I wouldn't say it's ironic because in some ways, you know, I mean, one, I mean, going back to a lot of the things that we've been talking about, that they said that, you know, he, you know, that if Colin, that Colin Kaepernick is going to suffer, he's going to get cut. That didn't happen. Um, no one's going to sign him to an endorsement deal. It's no one's going to buy his jersey. What happened? It was the exact opposite. The report is that his jersey sales are now, now number one. So again, I understand and I can put myself in the shoes of, college athletes and all the pressure to, uh, you know, stay under the radar screen and not draw that type of attention. But I also, um, on the other side, believe that, um, you know, that there's opportunities to, you know, speak out um, or at least speak on behalf of your fellow college basketball players on issues that are are truly important. And I don't think there's going to be consequences that, you know, some may, may suggest. And I would think right now is probably the easiest time to do it because, as you alluded to earlier, you've got social media. It's easy to – I use that term loosely, but it is easier than it was in the past in order to gather the thoughts of like-minded individuals across the country uh, at different schools. So let's take this a step further and let's say that college basketball players – got together next year and said, we are going to boycott the 2017 NCAA basketball tournament. None of us are going to play. We're going to take a stand. Granted, there might be backlash. Let me ask you this question. If that were to happen, what do you think the number one thing they should ask for is? Wow. I mean, I think you told the uh, the listeners that I represent college basketball coaches. So, I mean, it must sound like I have the most dysfunctional business model, <laughs> and I probably do. Uh, and but but what's really interesting is when you do talk to college coaches and former coaches, as as I do, you know, they they recognize that we need to do more to support players. Uh, so that's not a you know a bad thing. It's just you know really I try to say it's not necessarily a list of demands, but what would the landscape of college athletics 
and college basketball play uh, basketball look like if we empowered players, if we partnered with them and said, I mean, almost like you know when you know David Stern in the in the mid eighties, he talks about you know the you know what what he could do to partner with the players to make them stakeholders in this game. You know that in some ways, I, I you know I I don't believe the suggestion for one second, Adam, that. You know, we're, I mean, you know, that they're going to kill non-revenue sports. And any, if anything, I believe the opposite would happen. We would grow the pie that we could use ath- college basketball players who are highly visible and make them more attractive to sponsorship, to TV. And it would be, a, you know, a, a win-win. So, again, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I would want to um, at least phrase it along the lines of, you know, that – College basketball players know what's going know what's going on. They deserve a seat at the negotiating table, um, you know. And and from there, we can come up with reasonable changes to college basketball player college basketball that would reflect reality. Would be bilateral. Would be fair for both sides, and everybody can still make their millions or billions or you know just a few you know thousand dollars. Uh, depending on you know what what side of the table you sit on. Well, that probably leads us to the Olympic model, and a lot of people refer to the Olympic model as being something that would be fair, um, as fair as possible, I guess, for these these college athletes. So, can you explain what the Olympic model is? Oh, let's go. You know, what's interesting is if if, if you uh, allow me. Uh, to go back to the beginning of the NCAA uh, and, you know, and the IOC. So I'll give a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, Walter Byers worked for uh, Avery Brundage. Avery Brundage was the head of the USOC and then later went on to become uh, the head of the IOC. This was in the late 40s. He Walter Byers worked for the Big uh, Ten office, and then he basically moonlighted as the head of the NCA as their first executive director. That the bigger job was working for the uh, the Big Ten, and there was just um, incredible interaction between uh, Walter Byers, who was involved in college athletics, and Avery Brundage, who uh, was involved in the. Uh, the Olympic movement. And um, Avery, uh, I, I don't uh, want to get into you know that whole thing, but not really a good person. Uh, you know, was uh, probably was you know an anti-Semite, and um, you know ran you know ran the IOC with an iron fist. Uh, but he used to always chide Walter Byers for uh, abandoning the principles of amateurism. Uh, why? Because they were offering grant and aids, what we know as athletic scholarships, because he viewed that as a form of compensation. So, you know, I mean, you know, talk about coming full circle, Adam, uh, you know, not, you know, so, so, so now we're, you know, you're, we're, we're talking about, wow, wouldn't it be great if the NCA borrowed some of the, uh, you know, the, the updated principles, if you want to call them principles um, of you know, of the Olympics, and apply that to to the NCAA, where you know the athletes can take scholarship, can take endorsement money without jeopardizing their uh, their athletic scholarships and their eligibility. So you know, it's just it's there's an interesting history there. Uh, 
But, you know, again, I, I totally support the fact that there are aspects of the NCA that is progressing. Uh, one of the things that even I learned is that, you know, we have a um, something called the Op- Operation Gold Medal, which is an economic incentive for athletes to train uh, for the Olympics and earn medals and have a dollar amount uh, attached to, you know, gold medal, silver, you know, bronze. And, and so... Uh, a few years ago, the NCA said that American athletes, not not foreign athletes, but American athletes can accept uh, prize money, you know, as long as it's done through this Olympic uh, gold medal program. Uh, and then, you know, what was really interesting, and I think, you know, the the the, the prize money ranges from, you know, ten to thirty thousand dollars, and I believe it goes into some type type of trust. Uh, but then it's there was a, a swimmer from, I believe the Philippines or uh, uh, Singapore, and if I was if I thought that this question was going to come up, I'd have had the name um, at the tip <laughs> of my tongue. Uh, but they had something along the lines of like a half million dollar benefit. Just a couple years ago, the NCA uh, got rid of that xenophobic rule that said it was only American athletes and said it was open to all athletes. And this swimmer participates as an NCA swimmer at University of Texas. He gets to keep that money. And, you know, again, it's just it's, it's just interesting that sports like that uh, you know, have a mechanism in place where, uh, you know, you can have an amateur athlete accepting big money and can still compete uh, at the collegiate level. And by the way, you know, it, I mean, the world of college athletics is not going to spin off its axis. It's you know, it made for a couple interesting ar- um, articles. Uh, I think I you know made you know made some points on on Twitter. Um, it's just a matter of you know what what kind of lines you want to draw, and you know who are the most empowered athletes. It's the high profile football and basketball players. How about the endorsement part of all this? Why is it? That um trying to think of an example. Dan Dickow, for instance, superstar at Gonzaga. How come Dan Dickow couldn't do while he was in college uh an advertisement for the local Toyota dealership in, in Spokane, Washington? Okay, so I mean now you're making me take the position of the NCA and obviously I can just you know recite the NCA rules and basically that um, you know, no student athlete shall, uh, you know, benefit from their athletic ability. So the only reason why a car dealer would be interested in um, our good friend Dan Dickow would be because of his fame that was derived from uh, playing basketball for Gonzaga. So, you know, that, that you know, it's a non-starter. He can't do it. Uh, you know, a, a more interesting, more nuanced situation was Jeremy Bloom when he uh, was participating as a college football player in Colorado, but was also on the U.S. Uh, slalom team. And he wanted to uh, be able to get um, endorsement money, not necessarily to pocket, but that was, you know, it was very costly just to train um, and prepare for the Olympics in, you know, a, a less high profile sport like, um, you know, mogul s- skiing. And, you know, that, you know, that went up the courts and the NCA, uh, you know, just did not want to open up that can of worms and said, nope, can't do it. If you want to participate as a college uh, football player, you cannot take endorsement money and still participate. And then, you know, the, the, the you know, 
the next step was, well, gee, you know, you can be a college football player, be drafted by a col- by a major league baseball team, sign a multi-million dollar deal and, you know, and sign it and, co- you know, collect money um, and still participate as a college football player or whatever sport that, um, you know, that, that you are professional in one area, you can be so-called amateur in another. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's just what I call the gerrymandering of of the rules. So, you know, as long as, in um, going back to answering your question, is those are the rules, but the, you know, the, the method behind this madness is the NCA and their members recognize that they don't want to give up control because once athletes are able to access uh, sponsorship deals, endorsements, the theory goes that, you know, that they are going to take money away and ultimately it's going to lead to what? College programs being cut. And now you've got, uh, you know, going back to the 500,000 student athletes in the denominator, you've got 99% of them against college basketball and football players who are griping for more extra benefits, more rights. Uh, you know, why, you know, why do they want more? They should be happy with what they get. It's very clever, right? It is. It is very clever. It's it's very fascinating to me. Uh, and you bring up some some unbelievable points behind the madness. Um, one of the things that you touched on a little bit earlier, which I've always found fascinating, that goes, I guess, under the whole idea, again, of control is the rules regarding transfers um, and that players who transfer at the Division One level from one school to another must sit out for a season um explain to me why this rule should or should not exist okay so basically it's uh i'm using math a lot in in my responses it's the lowest common denominator it assumes that the um the primary reason why player x will transfer from one school to another is because some other coach or some other intermediary is in that player's head and encouraging them in violation of NCAA rules to uh, you know, transfer. So you know, let's put a economic barrier in the form of saying to athletes that if you uh, if you want to transfer, one you've got to get our permission. We we can control what schools you transfer to, and then we're going to put up the barrier of having to sit out one season. So you know it's really just a, a mechanism by which the um, you know the NCA can control this so-called transfer epidemic. Um, it, it sort of takes um, out of consideration the fact that. There's a lot of transfers among the general student population. You know, that these are you know decisions that are made when they're 17, 18 years old. I'm a big believer in sticking things out and doing what you can to you know make things work. But I'm also at the same time not a proponent of holding players there against their will. What we see a lot when it comes to uh, you know, making it to the uh, to the media or on Twitter is when coaches or the uh, institutions refuse to release these uh, players to certain schools and that they have some kind of rights uh, that, that go beyond what typically is a one-year scholarship. So that's the transfer portion of things. Another set of college rules 
that you referred to that I, I want to get back to uh, is the idea of the, the N- NBA draft rules and the issues that both you and I have with the, with the NBA draft rules. And we've talked about something before, which seems absolutely absurd to the casual observer. But when you dig a little deeper, maybe isn't so absurd and actually should probably be the way that it is. And that is the idea that all college basketball players, let's just stick to basketball for now, should be eligible for the NBA draft. You've thought about this. You've talked to others about this. Tell me about your stance on it. Okay, so a um, couple things. One is, you know, let's go to the the college model. I know it's very convenient to say, oh, you know, the the NCA should just adopt the college uh, baseball model that you have every single player automatically eligible for the draft. And then it's binary. They're either picked where they uh, want to be picked and will get a contract that would make it uh, such that they'll take a uh, major league baseball deal uh, over a opportunity to go to a college institution for three years, because then you wouldn't be eligible for major league draft for three more years. So you're automatically eligible. You don't have to declare for anything. Uh, I go back to, there was was an onion article that uh, just, um, you know, it was, you know, completely out there that suggested that all, you know, 3,500 college basketball players simultaneously declared for the draft. And, you know, all the implications that, uh, you know, would come from that. And what's, you know, crazy is, you know, that the people at The Onion, you know, had some knowledge of what was, you know, taking place and the inherent unfairness of it. And I read it and I'm like, my gosh, this is like the best idea ever. <laughs> and and so, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, telling that The Onion is coming up with better proposals than the NCA itself. So, uh, look, I, you know what I've said all along is that we should never put an athlete in a, um, in a in a situation where they're painted into a corner and they have to make a life decision that has unbelievable consequences. Turn pro and sign with an agent, and if you don't like where you're picked, too bad. You know, you renounced your, uh, you know, your amateurism, you've professionalized, see you later. Uh, you know, I've always just taken the view that if we really want college athletics to be what it really is capable of, it should be for anybody that wants to uh, be there. So if a kid makes a mistake, then why do we want to hold it against him? Why? Because we want to have a ca- cautionary tale so we can t- tell the kids the next year, don't be uh, you know, like this guy who declared for the draft, didn't take care of academics, and you know now he's waiting tables or whatever he's doing. So, you know, first of all, um, you know, there's ways that we could come up with that would not put athletes in a position where they have to declare for the draft. Uh, I, I did some uh, work with somebody who I consider a mentor, Arn Tellum, and you know, I mean. You know, he's obviously, you know, very knowledgeable, a former agent now running the Detroit Pistons. And, you know, we sat around, you know, just trying to come up with what would it look like. And, you know, one of the things that we said is the players know exactly what each pick uh, makes. And at some point, there's a no, uh, a go, no go point. So 
you know, why not just, you know, have some kind of secret ballot, a memo of understanding that says, if a player says that if I'm picked within the first 10 uh, picks of an NBA draft, that's good. I want that money. It's, um, it's worth it for me to renounce my college rights and turn pro. The NBA teams would see, you know, what was going on. And, you know, if, if there was a match, great. If not, you know, it's like no harm, no foul. Uh, you know, there, there's just no reason to have uh, the system that we have right now. I know that, you know, the NCA has uh, reduced some of the restrictions that allows players to now test the marketplace. And that, and that, and that's good. And I, I mean, I, I'm not against that. But I think we can still go further because a lot can happen on draft night. A lot can happen, um, you know, in in this whole process. And you know, even if they slip in the draft or they know that they made a bad decision, if they sign with an agent, if they took extra benefits, they can't undo that. If you know, it's public, um, you know, knowledge that that took place. Uh, well, another another really interesting. Uh, you know, history of of all this is you know going back to I think 19, let's see nineteen seventy eight. The rules, uh, the NCAA rules then were that you were automatically eligible for the NBA draft four years after your high school um, class graduated. So you had Larry Bird after four years, because he had started out at IU playing for Bobby Knight, didn't like to transfer to Indiana State. After his junior redshirt year, he was automatically eligible the Boston Celtics legendary you know, GM, Red Auerbach, selected him, I believe, with the sixth pick and says, Larry, I think we're better off with you going back to college. So what does Larry do? He goes back for that was the 1978-1979 college basketball season, probably the most historic one in history, right? Magic mm-hmm. Johnson, uh, Michigan State versus Indiana State in the national championship game, you know, we're still talking about it. But the interesting thing was you had somebody who was the rights of an NBA franchise. Did people turn off because, uh, you know, he was in some ways a professional athlete, athlete because he was, uh, you know, a, um, you know, a member of the Boston Celtics. He just didn't sign. And also interesting is that was some mechanism of a, a stat, you know, a stash, you know, player, you know, be, you know, uh, really early on. Draft and stash. <laughs> exactly. So, Mark, what's always been interesting to me about when you presented this argument and the discussions that we've had about it is that whole idea of let the marketplace dictate a player's value as opposed to the athlete themselves. We're talking about 19-year-old kids, 20-year-old kids. They all have dreams of playing in the NBA. The inclination just human nature is when you hear positive things about yourself, they're going to mean more to you than when, when you hear negative things and whether that's mock drafts online or people in your ear. And we love to rip apart. And I say, we, as, as the media, we love to rip apart these kids that make these bad decisions and, Oh, why did he think he was going to be a first rounder? Well, uh, he didn't know how many players from overseas were going to participate in the draft. He didn't know that what the GMs were telling him was false. He didn't know that these certain teams had issues with his agent. So there are so many factors that go in to making what's called, in hindsight, a poor decision, when oftentimes if the marketplace could just dictate it for us and the pl- and the teams just drafted the players they felt were were best and most suitable for their teams, you'd cut out a lot of the cat and mouse games. I don't know that we'll ever see that. And right now the NBA draft is such big business. 
uh, and people like how it goes now, but I agree with you that that it is flawed. Um, Mark, one question that that comes up to me almost every time I talk to you, I've never asked you this, um, but certainly is apparent as we're we're doing this podcast that I was dying to ask is why do you care so much? Great question. Not even prepared for that uh, that question, <laughs> but okay. So you know, I played. Uh, Division three basketball. I've been around the game. I had a lot of friends that uh, were, you know, college and professional athletes, and had a, you know a close friend that worked for a pretty high level sports agency. And then obviously, my wife is a broadcast agent. So I started looking at these issues, and I started reading. I think the first book that I read probably twenty years ago, uh, College Sports Inc. And you just kind of look at it and you just, I applied that to a book that I think I read in high school. Uh, I'm from Chicago. And I think one of the required readings was Upton Sinclair, uh, The Jungle. And and just, you know, I've always taken the perspective of the worker, uh, the rights of, and fair treatment of, um, you know, the working class. And, you know, maybe I'm for the underdog or, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but I don't like people ta- being taken advantage of. And I'm willing to you know, speak out, especially when you see this mechanism that, um, you know, is so powerful and there's so much of this PR. And when you cut through it and you really study the issues, you just, you know, kind of get angry. And, 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 and what I've tried to do, and I, and, I, and I hope that we didn't sort of just, you know, get bogged down in the issues is like, yeah, I complain or I write an article ranting about something that's, you know, unfair. But, you know, I, I really come back to wanting to educate people because good things happen. It's hard to uh, you know, really uh, you know, be taken advantage of if you know the game that's being played, if you understand the business. So, I, you know, I, I've I've always loved sports. But I, I'm not a rah-rah fan. I've just, you know, really started talking about the issues and wondering, you know, why are scholarships one year renewable? Now, in the last few years, you do have the option where uh, schools can extend scholarships for, you know, up to five years. Uh, but there's just so many different examples that we, you know, can go on and on. Um, you know, and again, just you know, wanting the game, you know, to make the game better and to have the conversations. We, you know, the NCA, and I've had a lot of interactions with them. It's almost like you know, you're either a true believer or you're not. And you know, what we found is that you know, you can still love college athletics and you can still support it as a fan, and still um, you know recognize that we can do better. And that's, you know, uh, um, you know, the perspective that I hope I bring in wanting to advocate for, for athletes and, and even coaches. I think coaches are some of the best advocates. You know, you were talking about, you know, just all the times that coaches are telling kids to stay and all the times that agents are telling them to go and trying to get the marketplace to, you know, come up with a better solution. I know a lot of coaches that want to do right by uh, the players. And they recognize that if you do right by one player, it just perpetuates. And, you know, I mean, we can get into John Calipari and just, you get one, one and done player, and then you get, you know, 20 of them, you know, but because, you know, he's created this, you know, model that says, I'm going to take care of my players. I'm going to do right by them. And, you know, that's, you know, that's what I'm fascinated and intrigued by. Awesome. Good. It's a wonderful, wonderful answer. And I also want you to be able to explain to people, they they understand your passion for the game, but just 
how deep that passion goes. You told me a great story recently about your interactions at a fairly young age with Michael Jordan when he was with the Bulls. Care to share that story? Yeah. Uh, so this is you know, circa you know, 1986 to 1990, back when NBA teams didn't have their own uh, practice facilities. So they would you know, rent time from the local gym. And so, you know, we were, I was in college at the time and we would play, you know, college, we would, you know, play on the court that, uh, that the Bulls practiced in. It had the Bulls logo and, um, you know, it was really just a chance to see a lot of guys up close and personal and see their practice habits. And a lot of times I would rebound for Charles uh, Oakley. And, you know, I mean, there were so many guys that would come in and, and, and we would shoot at the same basket. And, you know, what was always fascinating to me, and I wrote about this in, in Money Players, is, you know, we all, you know, you would see Michael Jordan on the biggest stage, you know, in the national championship game uh, against Georgetown in the early 80s. You know, you'd see him playing you know, in front of 22,000, uh, you know, at the madhouse on Madison uh, and, 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 you know, like, Oh, you know, you could see why he would get up for those type of, you know, big money games. But what I saw was just, you know, I mean, this relentless uh, person who practiced exactly the way that he played, you know, there was no difference between, you know, uh, you know, a game that was televised on NBC versus, you know, uh, you know, a practice or an individual workout. He was, you know, there all the time. He was working on his game. He was doing all the drills, you know, the figure eights, the Spider-Man, uh, you know, that, you know, you would kind of, you know, sometimes I shouldn't say this because if my, uh, you know, some of my former coaches are listening, you know, that you might half ass it, you know, he, you know, I mean, he was doing it exactly the way you know, his coaches wanted him to do it and demanded him to do it. And, you know, again, I mean, you know, you, you see the practice habits of the great ones and, you know, you, you know, you recognize that, you know, there might be something off in, in Michael in, in, in many ways, but the way he channeled it to basketball was, you know, what, you know, once in a lifetime and to, you know, I mean, obviously have the good fortune to go see him at some of these games um, at the, at, at, you know, Chicago stadium was incredible. But, you know, as I reflect back, there was nothing better than just sitting in front of that. There was a, a window that you could watch some of their practices and, you know, and see him firsthand up close and personal, you know, that, that, practices meant so much to him, uh, you know, definitely tells you a lot about him as a person and certainly the lessons that, you know, can be learned from him. Awesome stuff. So last question I have for you, Mark. And last that is, question. I want to keep going. I feel, I, last I feel like we're just getting started. <laughs> well, you're going to have plenty of time to talk on, on your new podcast, which is my last question for you. And that's, again, the 40-Year Coach podcast you can find wherever podcasts are, are available. You got to download this. Unbelievable stuff. Mark Eisenberg is going to teach you things. But Mark, could you explain what, what the podcast is all about and why you decided to do one in the first place? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to play to the host, but, uh, you know, you're like the Archie Bunker of, uh, you know, of podcasts that your friends. Please, please explain that. Please well, explain. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Actually, I'm you know like what? I, I totally screwed that up. It's really more than Norman Lear. So I think it was Archie Bunker, uh, you know, the the, the uh, TV show in the 70s, then, you know, that was uh, created by, you know, Norman Lear. So then Norman Lear started, you know, had an idea for another show. 
And, you know, so it was Maud and then it was the Jeffersons and I'm leaving out like three shows, but he would always start it, um, you know, on, um, you know, the, um, all in the family in the Archie bunker. And so, you know, I, I, have seen you in action. You know, you, uh, you, you know, we started talking about you doing a podcast and then just the conversation, Mark, you should do your own. So, um, in some ways I give you, um, you know, a lot of credit for giving me the courage to, um, you know, go forth with it. So I, you know, want to at least take that time to, um, acknowledge your, your, your influence. So, um, you know, really, you know, part of it is just all the conversations that I have. I almost have this 360 degree view of college and professional basketball. I, you know, I'm, you know, friends with and, and and work with, you know, many college basketball coaches. I'm friends with, you know, the players, current and former, um, talking to broadcasters. And there's really just a lot of good information that is out there and hearing their stories. And so, you know, I really want to, you know, have a show that talks about the business of being a college coach. And, you know, let me just real quickly, just the 40-year coach, how I came up with that name, and you were involved with some of the back and forth of what would be a good name. And the 40-year coach is really just the, um, the recognition that coaches have an unbelievable impact on their players, not just for the four years um, or so that a player is in their program, but really a lifelong impact. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's it's bad, and and I'm always reminded, and I'll you know bring this up you know on my first podcast. Um, Amos Alonzo Stagg, when he was the head coach of University of Chicago when they were in the Big Ten conference in the you know like 20s or 30s, uh, he, he was one of the most successful coaches. And they had asked him, you know, after they won the Big Ten and went undefeated, was this your best season ever? And you know, his response was, you know what? Ask me in 20 years. I want to see how my boys, you know, do in the real world. And and so the coaches that are in it for the um, the long term, who sort of you know have this long term approach that aren't necessarily looking for, you know, okay, I want to get this assistant job, and then I want to get a head job, and then I want to be making millions, but are really uh, driven by the journey and really understanding, you know, what works. Today might not work tomorrow. And what kind of skill sets do you need to, um, you know, have? And how can you increase the chances that, you know, you can be successful and how you define success, you know, can be, you know, many different ways. And obviously, um, what we're asking of college coaches, uh, you know, to perform and to succeed and win, you know, a, a certain level of games so that they are able to continue to do what they, what, what they love to do. Um, it's extraordinary. And, and so, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, a, a need to have, uh, you know, a deeper dive in, into these type of issues. And, uh, you know, I, I have the good fortune of knowing people who I, you know, respect what they have to say. You know, I mean, we won't always agree, but I want to have that back and forth of, um, you know, I have a lot of coaches that believe in, you know, you know open the floodgates for players transferring. Um, the the coaches that do right by their players in a, in, in a zero sum game will actually do better because people will get wind. The players will get wind of coaches that do right um, and care about their players. And you know, so so again, I mean, then you know, you'll you'll have some other disagreements, and uh, you know, I love it. I I've always believed that we'll do better uh, by the players if you know we have an open dialogue and that we're not afraid to you know speak openly about what's really going on. Well, 
I know that people will really learn a ton from listening to you. I thank you for your kind words, and I'm excited about all of the the things you have in store and and the interviews and just the fun that you're going to have. I'm I'm really excited about all the the future podcasts that that you're going to be putting out. I know we've discussed some at at length, and I I really cannot encourage people enough to go and subscribe the Forty Year Coach Podcast. Um, go and check that out. You can also find uh, Mark Eisenberg's work, as I mentioned earlier, his column in the Basketball Times. You can pick up his books, Money Players, and the Student Athlete Survival Guide. And you can find Mark Eisenberg on Twitter at Mark Eisenberg. That's M-A-R-C-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. Mark, it was an absolute pleasure and uh, we'll be speaking soon, but uh, it was great, great, great to have you on the podcast. Oh, I enjoyed every second of it, Adam. Thank you. So that was Mark Eisenberg. Uh, Really loved having him on the podcast. Great friend and uh, certainly a knowledgeable guy about everything that has to do with NCAA, amateurism, student athletes, you name it. He is the best source that I've ever had in terms of some of these discussions, arguments, and, and different viewpoints. Again, check out Mark Eisenberg on Twitter, at Mark Eisenberg. You can check me out on Twitter, Adam Stanko, at Naismith Lives, and this podcast on Twitter, at Great Point Pod. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to the Great Point Podcast. That would be huge for us, and uh, it would also be huge if you gave us a rating. Just let us know what you think of the pod, regardless of, of what that is. That'll do it for us this week. We'll catch you next time.